Please take your Bibles and turn into the book of Joel and the Minor Prophets. We will continue our exposition of this wonderful book. We've had two sermons in it so far. We're getting rather ambitious to take 17 verses today uh, from chapter 2, but um, I trust the Lord will uh, give us His grace. The book of Joel, as I when I introduced it a few weeks ago, some, even some theologians, believe that it's written by two different people because the stark contrast from chapter 2, verse 18 on compared to the, the first two chapters. And um, I don't think, I don't believe that. I think Joel wrote it. But really, there's a call to lament because of a huge locust plague in the first section from one one to 2.17. And then the Lord's response to the people's genuine repentance and a beautiful picture of restoration. The central theme of, of the prophet of Joel is at this time of natural, a national catastrophe in Judah, and Joel calls the people to return to God. They had become indifferent. They had become careless. And there's a, there's a divine call through the prophet to the people. It's a wake-up call from God to get right with him. Throughout the book, he warns of these toxic patterns of sin and how that can lead to a dullness and, a, and an indifference. Chapter 2, as we'll see today, really just picks up where chapter 1 left off. Judgment is coming. Turn to the Lord before it's too late. There's a huge deception in our day and amongst Christendom that there's no real urgency to repent and get right with God, that you can wait until later in life. This is important for you young people to consider. Hey, I've got all my high school years. I got my college years. I got my 20s and my 30s and, and maybe later in life. And you keep postponing the inevitable that you will face God. And if you don't repent, it will be too late. Listen to Arthur Pink. <clears throat> He calls it an insanity, what I just described. What insanity is that that persuades multitudes to defer the effort to repent until their deathbeds? Do they imagine that they are so weak, that when they're so weak, then they can no longer turn their bodies, that they will have the strength to turn their souls from sin? Far sooner could they turn themselves back to perfect physical health. What folly it is. You see, the, the, the people, and, and even Christendom today, but the people in, in, in Judah during this time had become like the sluggard in Proverbs that, that plops the hand into the bowl, but has no strength to bring the food to the mouth. They'd become so indifferent. The, the people of Joel's day, they, they put their hand into the bowl and tearing their garments but not rending their hearts. It was a halfway repentance, as it were. I'm just going to read verses 12 to 14 for us. I, I um, had the whole chapter read. We just heard it in our hearing. Let me just read these few verses, and then we'll get started. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart and with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments. 
Now return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting of evil. Who knows whether he will turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, and even a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word here. We thank you that even in the midst of national catastrophe, in the midst of great loss, in the midst of great suffering, that there is always hope to those that would turn to you. And Lord, no doubt there are some here that are going through turmoil, that are suffering loss, that are discouraged and depressed, that are suffering in in a myriad of ways. But, but perhaps they haven't completely turned to you, Lord. Would you stir in hearts even this very day? Would you purify even us as a church? We pray for the many who are missing today and uh, with various sicknesses, Lord. We pray that you would be with them even now to help us, Lord, to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in the midst of this national calamity, a locust plague, it's pretty remarkable of how that would affect an agrarian society, right? A society that, that depends on um, the growth of food and this locust invasion that comes. And, and he even says these imperatives in chapter 1 and verse 2. Hear this, O elders, and listen. It's a double imperative. And, and, and then he even says, has anything even happened like this, even in your father's day? This was such a remarkable devastation that, that nothing in recent thought had even happened. And then it's so important in verse 3, he says, tell your sons about it and their sons about it, that this is a day to remember when God came to visit his people. So in the midst of this devastation, there's this call to lament. Verses 5 to 13, the drunkards, the farmers, the priests, all are to lament. In verse 14, we'll see this repeated in our text today. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land and the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. So a call to cry out. Now, chapter 1. I told you, I believe, is definitely describing a literal locust plague. Some debate that. Most agree with that. And chapter 2, there's a bit of a shift here. It's, it's, it's not so much what has happened. Chapter 1's reporting what has happened. Chapter 2 is, get ready. The day of the Lord is coming. It is very near. And so to prepare oneself. And it, it, there's heightened imagery and stirring imagery that's there, and the, the overtones of these greater invaders, these, these armies, these soldiers, these horses, and all of that. Joel is saying that the original literal locust invasion is a warning of even worse things to come. Now, Joel has more than one day of the Lord in view, as do the prophets, right? We're going to look at some of these other prophets and how they describe it. There's, there's multiple days to the Lord. Of course, this is a, a day that is coming very near for them, the judgment that Judah is facing when he actually wrote. Also, in the future for Judah, the invading armies that would come, you think of the day of Christ coming. There's similar language that's there. The kingdom of God is at hand. 
repent and believe the gospel. The day of the Lord has come in that sense. You think of A.D. 70, even in Mark chapter 13, uh, Matthew 24, this idea of, of this cataclysmic event of the sky is being darkened and the moon no longer giving its light. It refers to even A.D. 70. And then, of course, that great and final day, which is yet to come, in which Jesus and Peter discuss. So today, we're going to look at this under two simple points, really. Verses 1 to 11 is the the great day of the Lord is near. And then uh, secondly, 12 to 17, God may relent if you repent. So first of all, Verse 1, blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let the inhabitants of the land tremble. The day of the Lord is coming. Sure, it is near. There is an important clue here that Joel's purpose and the way he begins this chapter, it's not so much with a view to the past, as I already said, as, as much of anticipation of the future Innovation described there in chapter 2. And, and, and the imagery that's used here is, is a watchman on the tower, right? What would a watchman do in those days? They'd be looking for invading armies, right? And they would blow that ram's horn if they saw an enemy approaching. <clears throat> As Leslie Allen in his commentary says, a blast from a horn from the tower in those days would be the ancient equivalent to the modern air raid siren, okay? Some of us have been in those sirens, or I grew up when there was a tornado warning, these sirens would buzz, and you, you see them in different movies in different places. So Joel's role is to sound the alarm, and he does it with great vivid language. Even in light of all of the devastation that has already happened and the starvation and the, even the animal suffering, Joel is saying there needs to be a deeper work of lament and mourning and true repentance. That's what Joel's message is. And so like the, the keen eye Ezekiel, who is the, the watchman, right, for the sheep, of God's sheep, just like that, so too, Joel sounds the alarm. What are the characteristics of the day of the Lord as portrayed by the other biblical writers? Isaiah 13 and verse 6, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. A few verses later, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel with fury and burning anger, to make a land of desolation, and he will exterminate its sinners from it. And the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not flash their light. The sun will be dark when it rises, and the moon will not shed its light. Vivid language. Amos 5, beginning in verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him. Or he goes home and he leans his hand on the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, and even with no brightness in it at all? So you have these various descriptions, right? Zephaniah 1, verses 14 to 17 could be another one you could, you could look up. These various descriptions, and even Jesus picks up on this, doesn't he? Right? In those prophetic uh, passages there, Matthew 24, he, he speaks of, of this darkening of the sun and the moon pointing to the great day of the Lord. 
Peter would say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away and the roar of the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Pretty sobering so far, isn't it? I hope so it is for you. But then look at verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom. Have you ever been somewhere where it was just pitch black? You couldn't see your hand in front of you. You ever been in a situation like that? If you ever go down into caves, I don't even think they do this anymore. The last time we toured some caves somewhere, my wife's in the nursery. I always look to her for help. Um, I, don't, I don't remember where it was, but they're like, hey, can you turn off the lights? Because, you know, they would do that so that you could actually see how it was. Oh, we're not allowed to do that anymore. <laughs> but uh, this is a day of darkness. It's a day of gloom. It's, it's a sobering day. Now, do you remember God's judgment against the Egyptians? Moses goes to Pharaoh, let my people go, let my people go, let my people go. There, and those judgments that came, and one of those judgments, the eighth, was what? Locusts, right? So the locusts come. But you know what the one right after that is? Darkness. It says in Exodus 10, 22, Moses stretched out his hand towards the heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three full days. When I was in that cave, it was maybe 30 seconds or maybe a minute. (laughs) Three full days, pitch darkness. Think of the other plagues of Egypt and how the people of God would, you know, even, even in those Exodus passages, right, the people of God are like, yes, God, execute judgment on our enemies, right, as they hear of these, and even the firstborn, the tenth, that, that would come. But, but here's the starking thing. Now these very plagues, which in the past were for God's enemies, are now coming upon them because of their sin and rebellion before God. You can almost hear the people asking, Joel, is there not a word of mercy for us? In light of all of this calamity and what's coming, he's painting a picture of solemnity. No matter what they did to try to fight off this, they would be unsuccessful. Verses 3 to 5, very quickly, notice the language. As a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. The, the, The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, a desolate wilderness behind them. There's no escaping. Verses 3 to 10, what you have here is the the agents of God's judgment. And verse 3, 6, and 10, you'll see the phrase, before them, before them. There's three sections here, and, and, and each one builds upon it. And so the plague of locusts that would come would, would, would have the sound, it even says the noise of chariots, it would be so loud and roaring. It would be like a wildfire that we have here in Southern California when the Santa Ana winds fuel it, and when 100-foot-tall pine trees are burning, it's so incredibly loud, the loud, crackling noise of a fast-moving wildfire. Verses 6 to 11, the Lord commanding this invading army, as it were, using that language, causes the people to become terrified, even pale in their face. They're petrified before a holy God. Nothing could possibly stop this invading army. 
They, they climb like soldiers, it's, it, it uses, and, and horses. And even last time, as I quoted that uh, historical account of the huge locust invasion in Palestine in the year 1915, one, one of the accounts is they enter through the windows like a thief. They enter in the innermost recesses of the houses there. They're found in every corner. They stuck to our clothes, and they infested our food. In other words, there was no escaping from these locusts. And these are agents of God. 120 million locusts per square mile, and one of these events was over 1,000 square miles. You do the math. Trillions of these, each one sent by Almighty God, who's sovereign in all things. It says they turn their face, they're pale, they're weak, they're helpless. it's, It's like September 11th. Last September, um, we watched some of the documentaries and historical footage of those twin towers when they had fallen down and, and the firsthand accounts of the people that were there. You know what I remember about that? The stark look in so many of those faces. They had seen something that they've never seen before and they will never see again. Doctors, construction workers, police personnel, fire personnel, all manner of personnel that have been trained for this, and yet there's a look of pale face and a petrified look. This is not merely a reaction to a bunch of insects that provokes that type of look and panic, but it's panic before a holy God. One that's altogether holy. It's Isaiah 6 type of thing where Isaiah says, Woe is me! I'm undone! I've seen the very glory of God. Verses 10 and 11 speaks of earthquakes and the heavens trembling, all manner of cosmic disturbances. Ultimately, this is pointing to the day of judgment. The people heard the message of Joel and perhaps thought that they could escape in some way, but but they can't escape. You see, it's when drastic situations happen in our lives as we live our Christian lives, a devastating diagnosis, a terrible accident where we've lost a child or a spouse, and it's when these things come into our lives that we need to actually have short accounts with God and consider, is God getting my attention and calling me to repent of my sin? Have I become so blinded to my sin that I don't even know that I'm committing these sins? They're in great, desperate need of grace and mercy. So that's a summary, the first 11 verses. It's really a recapitulation, as it were, of of chapter 1, so we're not spending a lot of time on that. Come with me now to our second point. God may relent if you truly repent. Verses 12 to 17. Now notice the first three words in verse 12. Yet, even now. Those are glorious words. Those are words of comfort. Those are words of hope. Yet, even now. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart. He doesn't say, yet, even now, here's seven steps to a happy life. He's not, here's five steps to restoration. Just tick the box, 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 box. No, it's genuine heart repentance that is being called for here. So verse 12 to 13a, return to God with all of your heart. Joel underlines the 
the, the need for a sincere repentance, calling for consistency in both the inner and the outer man, right? When Joel speaks of repentance, he's speaking of the heart, right? Now, it's not that he doesn't use that there's external things, right? True, Joel commands that, fasting, weeping, mourning. Those are external things that people can do, but not have their heart change. He's calling for both, right? Like John says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Listen to Arthur Pink again. Evangelical repentance is not at the beck and call of the creature. It is a gift of God. Multitudes desire to be saved from hell. And he says that's the natural instinct of self-preservation, but are quite unwilling to be saved from sin. They don't want hell, but they don't want to give up their sin either. See, the type of repentance that that the prophet here is calling for is the type of repentance we desperately need in our day, in our churches, in our Reformed churches, but even in our country. And what are some of the marks of repentance? First of all, if you're repenting, you're confessing. What does confess mean? To agree with God. So you're acknowledging specific sins before him. It's not, oh, oh God, please forgive me. I sinned this past week. And you don't identify any specific areas of sin. So first of all, the first mark of repentance is a confession of specific sins, not a generic kind of thing, a broad brush type of thing. There's no ownership in that. Charles Spurgeon tells a story, and some of you have heard this, I'm sure, of um, uh, of um, could somebody plug this fan in, Jamil, or somebody? I don't know. I'm like burning up up here. Um, Spurgeon tells a story of a woman who went to see her minister, claiming that, "Oh, I'm such a great sinner. Forgive me for my sins." And, and so, but but the uh, minister detected that perhaps her confession wasn't genuine. And so basically it goes like this. He suspected her confession was not genuine. And so he said to her, well, if, if you're a sinner, of course you've broken God's laws. Let us read the Ten Commandments together and see which one of these you've broken. And he began to read, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Did you ever break that, ma'am? Oh, no, no. What about graven images? Have you ever broke that? Oh, no, I would have never done that. Well, what about taking God's name in vain? And the woman was very particular on this point. Thank you so much. Um, Was very particular on this point and said, oh, no, she would never think to offend God by taking his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Oh, I've never worked on Sunday. Honor your mother and father. Yes, I did that. And it went on and on with the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and the ninth and the tenth commandment. And, And she did not consider that really the minister concluded that what he suspected was true, she doesn't really consider herself a sinner. She, does, she can't own one sin. She was only repenting in, in a pious type of way. I'm a great sinner, and so I've got a great repentance. So, confession of specific sins. By the way, 
We have several examples of false repentance in the Bible. The Bible talks about this worldly sorrow, 2 Corinthians 7, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Think of King Saul. You think of Esau. Remember when we were wrapping up the book of Hebrews just recently where it says there in Hebrews 12 and verse 16 and 17, and that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. You see, the problem with 21st century evangelicalism is that God has sort of come down into this huge vending machine, and we plug our quarters in, and we punch the right numbers and the right letters, and and, and then we can get anything from God that we want, never mind his word. And that's really the mindset, right? It's our genie who art in heaven, whatever I pray for, of course he's going to give me. Vending machine, machine Christianity, sadly, is the mark of today. But Joel says, yet, even now, turn now before it's too late. Isaiah 49, 8, in spite of the greatness of your guilt and, the, and, and nearness, judgment, there's still opportunity. But there is no time for further delay. Yet, even tomorrow? Now, yet even now, now is the favorable time. God can be propitious to you. It says in the the psalmist says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Another mark of true repentance is true contrition, right? Psalm 51, we're all familiar with that. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. You will not despise true contrition. Contrition is deeper than regret. Oh, I really wish I wouldn't have done that. That's regret, right? Contrition goes far deeper than that because regret can be that you regret that you did something, but there's no inward sorrow and contrition for it. Judas regretted his sin of betraying Jesus Christ so much to the degree that he returned those 30 pieces of silver, that blood money, and threw it back. But then he went out and committed suicide. He did not repent of his sin, and so he suffered for it. Isaiah 57, 15, I love this verse. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. Also with the contrite and lowly in spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. You know what that verse tells me? That's a glorious invitation. When you think of God's holiness and your own sinfulness, and you think that, that, yes, he dwells on that high and holy place, but also those that are truly broken and contrite of hearts. Another mark of repentance is to truly turn away to the other direction. That's why it says, return to me. Come back to me, God is saying 
That's the very essence of the word, really, is to have a change of mind, a change that is so deeply rooted that it alters the direction of your life, right? When you have a bunch of soldiers in boot camp facing south, and they're there, and they say, about face, what does that mean? They do an about face, and they are now facing north. That's the essence of the word. When the military command comes, repent, about face. You pivot, and you turn. So, There's just some marks of repentance there. But notice with me here, rend your heart and not your garments. Now return to the Lord. So it needs to be more than just external. We've already said that. But secondly, under this point, God's character motivates you to repent. The middle of verse 13, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting from evil, God revealed his character. We already heard it read in Exodus 34. The Lord passed by in front of Moses, and the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and transgressions of sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. He's slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. He's gracious. He's gracious. He shows favor to the undeserving. Even though you have repeatedly provoked him, he is still gracious with you. Jonah prayed there in um, chapter 4 and verse 2, Please, Lord, Was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish because I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness to the one who relents concerning calamity. He didn't want to preach to those wicked Ninevites, and they were very wicked in that day. He didn't want to preach to them because he knew there was a small chance that they would repent and then God would forgive them. He's compassionate, he's merciful, he's pity. Memorize Psalm 103. You will not regret memorizing that psalm. Psalm of great comfort as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sins. He's mindful that we're but dust. He's, he's pit- he pities us. He sees our weakness. He shows mercy to those who humbly ask him. He's also slow to anger. Wow, isn't that a wonderful thing? Slow to anger. His anger is always righteous and necessary because of his justice, but he chooses to delay it at times. He's slow to anger. You see, these these are motives. Motives to repent, to come to him, because he's so compassionate, because he's so gracious, because he's slow to anger. He's long-suffering with us in our sin. Even the locust plague that was so devastating for these people, so devastating there was no longer any wine, there was no longer any, any wheat, there was no longer in any, anything that it even stopped the very worship of God in the temple and the offerings. And yet, there's a chance for the people to return. You see, doesn't God do that? He allows trouble to come into our lives to get our attention. To get our attention 
to, that we would turn, that we would examine our relationship with him. And of course, we have all throughout the Psalms and the Old Testament, God's loving kindness. And the Hebrew has, has said, his loving kindness towards his people. Now, does God cause evil? Look at the end of verse 13, and relenting of evil? No, of course not. He's sovereign over all things. He justly brings bad things upon those who deserve judgment, but he's willing to turn away and to be slow to anger. Well, verse 14, we have here uh, (laughs) in the NAS, who knows whether he will not turn and relent. Isn't that, that's kind of like remarkable language, isn't it? The New English translation, which I really commend to you for your personal study, or at least comparing translations, has it like this. Perhaps he will be compassionate and grant us a reprieve and leave a blessing in his wake. It's a beautiful way to put this. But he puts, so the NA says, who knows whether. Well, I think that's the language of it's okay to hope, but not to presume, not to demand, but to have great hope. Who knows? God may be gracious to me, even me. Beautiful, beautiful language. Does God change his mind? Isn't God immutable? God, you know what? Mutable is like us. Like we're changing all the time. You know, might have had a headache this morning. and might have been in a good mood by 9 o'clock and by 10 o'clock. Something with, we're very mutable, right? But God is immutable. He does not change according to his purposes. 1 Samuel 15, 29. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. Now, I want to be very, very clear here. Even in the face of God's people repenting before him, God is totally sovereign. Their repentance does not control God any more than the incantations of a pagan priest, for example. But the doctrine of God necessitates that we profess God without passions, okay? Our confession of faith, the 1689 in chapter 2, which is the Holy Trinity, the doctrine of God, as it were, reads like this, and it bears listening to. This is the first paragraph describing God and the historic Reformed Baptist confession of faith. The Lord our God is but one living and true God whose substance is in himself infinite in being and perfection and whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but any himself. A most pure spirit, invisible, without body parts, without body, without parts, and without passions, who only has immortality and dwelleth in the light, which no man can approach unto, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty in every way, infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his immutable and most righteous will, all for his own glory. That's only the first half of paragraph one. But you see here, the description of God is very, very carefully worded. God is not a God that changes. Mankind does not change him. 
God's, God changes his dealings with men according to his sovereign purposes, which were planned before the foundation of the world. You see, you might think of it as a, as a thermometer. The mercury is the same essence in a thermometer, though it goes up and down. And I don't mean God getting hot and cooling down. I don't mean that at all. Every illustration <laughs> breaks down eventually, right? From our perspective, God responds to our repentance and faith. Ultimately, this too is part of his plan, even as I already mentioned, uh, Jonah, uh, in, earlier in chapter 3 in verse 9, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger that we will not perish, says the Ninevites, after they fasted, after they, they repented. God's warnings typically contain an, an implicit condition, if you repent, then God will relent. This doesn't mean that God is changing. And, and, and it's, it's beautiful here. Um, even, and leave a blessing behind him, even the grain offering and the drink offering for the Lord your God. And so really what we see here is the Lord not only responds to the repentance of God's people, but he begins to restore them. And, and, and even here, he, he restores the covenant blessings to his people. He doesn't, always, he doesn't only remove the judgment, but he restores the fruitfulness of the land. And you see, the minor prophets often act as, as prosecutors, don't they? Malachi, Micah, uh, it's indictment after indictment after indictment against God's people and their sin. Well, Joel's, Joel does the same thing, but you know what he's using? He's using the covenant curses from the law, in particular, Deuteronomy 32. Um, Stuart has put together a table in which there is at least, I didn't count them, 20 or 25 references to those covenant curses and blessings in Deuteronomy 32. So even though he doesn't implicitly refer to that, he, he's implicitly referring to that. That was off script, by the way. Uh, God's worship, it will be resumed and the people will live in peace. Look, Look at our country in the last 15 years. So Joel, you know, he's talking about this locust invasion. Even the fathers can't remember such a devastating thing. When Prop 8 passed in the state of California, I think it was 2008, legalizing gay marriage, I began standing behind this pulpit saying that the rate of decline will only accelerate as the time goes on. We're going downhill and I use the illustration of a slide that would become steeper and steeper and steeper. And in the last five years, I think it's almost perfectly inclined, right? I mean, you just you think of this gay marriage, this child porn, pedophilia, uh, the whole LB, LGBTQ movement uh, going full steam ahead. And now you've got such gender dysphoria that so many kids are questioning their identity at such an early age, and they're, it's, they're been being indoctrinated in this way. They're taking hormones. They're mutilating body parts that are irreversible, by the way. They say it's reversible. No, it's not. You're scarred for life. And, and you wonder why the suicide rate is so high. And then you have the third most powerful person in this country by election results and in God's providence an 82-year-old woman by the name of Nancy Pelosi that's celebrating Pride Week comes out and was commending the drag queens because of their creativity, and that's what America's all about. 
Are we under God's judgment or not? Is this just an accident? I mean, we cracked the door open and just more and more moral perversion. We live in days in which we need repentance. Need to cry for mercy, verses 15 to 17. As we wrap up this last section very briefly, we see here, blow a trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, having spoken of of the judgment to come and the nature and incentive of repentance, right? Verses 12 and 13, he now turns to the leaders. The leaders have to lead by example. In this case, the priests. And he calls on them to set the pattern, and there's seven imperatives, seven commands. And it's, it's very abrupt. Look at it. Blow the trumpet and Zion. Concert, declare a holy fast. Call the sacred assembly. Gather the people. Concentrate the assembly. Bring together the elders and gather the children. So much so here where it talks about the bridegroom and the bride come out of the chamber. It's time to come back from the honeymoon. Even if you're on your honeymoon, it's time to come back because this is such a solemn time. And really, what you have is a repeat of chapter 1 and verse 14. Consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly. And you see the same thing in chapter 2 and verse 1. And so really it's a repeating of that. Who is to do this blowing, declaring, gathering, consecrating? It is the priest. Verse 17, let the priest and the Lord's ministers weep between the porch and the altar. So the place where they offer sacrifices, the place where they would intercede for the people, let them too join in this lament before God. Let them make your inheritance a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? A couple concluding applications for us as we end. First of all, if this describes you, if you are living in rebellion against God and you know it, repent before it's too late. Some people know a lot about Christianity, right? They kind of know the story of Noah and the various, you know, biblical stories. And, and they even maybe know some, some Christian lingo. We meet them. We have family members that fall into that category. They even may, some may have a profession of faith, but they're living in rebellion against God. It is ridiculous to be careless with your soul. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. True repentance is marked by a true disgust for any sin. Thomas Brooks said, he never truly repented of any sin whose heart is not turned against every sin. We hate sin. We love the holiness of God. We want to please him in all respects. Secondly, if you're here today and you're you're those that have a tender conscience and you're fearful, you're doubting, you, you doubt God's gracious nature to, to you. You must recall his wonderful promises, and you must hold up the shield of faith as Satan's arrows would come against you and extinguish them with the truth of God. Having examined yourself, having convinced that you are truly repentant, don't allow Satan to come and cast his arrows of doubt to you. Jesus took all of God's wrath the wrath that you deserve for your sin upon himself. The one that is weak in conscience may question their true repentance. And especially when you fall into sins that you repented repented of 
and you fall back into those. Listen to John Calvin, great wisdom here. A sincere repentance from the heart does not guarantee that we will never wander from the straight path and sometimes be bewildered again. What is he saying there? Something that you may have repented for some time ago, that that just because you might fall into that sin again does not mean that your repentance wasn't genuine. In other words, genuine and biblical repentance does not guarantee never falling into a particular sin. If each of you were honest with yourselves, we could all testify to that truth. But each time there is a falling into a certain sin, um, there should become a greater disgust for it. I don't want to have to come back again. Lord, bring final victory and deliverance. It's like some men that I've talked to that that struggle with pornography. And, And lots of Christians, believe it or not, struggle with pornography. Men and women, I'm here to tell you, but that, that, you know, there's that, that back and forth, back and forth, and then God finally just completely delivers them. They're free. The shackles are, are broken. The chains are gone. I've been set free. And if you're outside of Christ today, you need to come to Jesus Christ, a compassionate Savior. Listen, those, the, back to the plagues of Egypt. You remember those plagues? Remember that ninth one, the darkness? When Jesus was nailed to the cross and put on the cross, darkness, the first three hours, all the heckling, he saved others, let him save himself, and all of that. Those last three hours, that darkness came back. There was a darkness that could be felt, a darkness that, that silenced all the hecklers for those last three hours as he was on the cross, just as that ninth plague was so startling. And then the last plague of the Passover in which the firstborn was killed. You remember that? All the Egyptians firstborn, even the cattle was killed. Here's Jesus, the firstborn on the cross being slain for enemies as he paid for the sins that we deserve to pay for ourselves. A beautiful picture there of how God uses his son as a substitute. The very plagues that we deserved, darkness and death, he puts upon his son. It's a glorious thing. And so he's buried. He raises from the dead on the third day, sits at the Father's right hand. As we learned throughout the book of Hebrews from two and a half years, he is our great high priest who can sympathize with us, who can draw near who's been tempted in every way, even as we are, and yet without sin. In other words, you can go to him and you can take it to the bank that he understands. He's full of compassion. He entered our suffering. But we must repent the about face, south to north, right? It's an about face. It's a hating of your sin. It's a coming to Christ who's a compassionate Savior, and he will save you. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you that even a passage like this is so powerful. It's dreadful on the one hand, but it's also filled with such hope. So, Lord, we pray that you would do a work in each of our hearts, even this day. In Jesus' name, amen.